Hello. Why are some countries doing better economically than others? What explains the pattern of inequality within and between nations? Some might answer by looking at the impact of COVID or, or maybe back to the financial crash. Others might recommend a longer lens. How about the post-war settlement or perhaps the impact of colonialism? But what if I told you that the two most important factors determining global patterns of prosperity and inequality can actually be traced back to, well, beyond history, into the very origins of our species over a hundred thousand years ago on the plains of East Africa? Far-fetched? Reductive? Dangerous? Maybe I would have thought so too before I read this week's book on Bridges to the Future. This is Bridges to the Future, the Big Ideas podcast, brought to you by the RSA with your host, Matthew Taylor. I'm delighted to welcome Oded Galor, author of The Journey of Humanity, The Origins of Wealth and Inequality. Oded, how are you? Fantastically well. It's a pleasure to be on, on your program. Great. Well, I'm really looking forward to our conversation. Let's start with the kind of core thesis of the book. Now, I'm going to try and summarize it in a sentence. I'll get it wrong, and then you can get it right. So for me, the core thesis is that patterns of prosperity and inequality today can be traced to our very origins as a species, our initial patterns of migration, and the interactions thereafter of geography and demography. How did I do? I think that that's, that's a very good description of the main thesis, indeed. I mean, the journey of humanity is an attempt to explore the evolution of human societies since the emergence of Homo sapiens in Africa 300,000 years ago in order to decipher two of the most fundamental mysteries that surround this journey. The first one I defined as the mystery of growth, namely what are the roots of the dramatic transformation in living standards that occurred in the past two centuries after literally 300,000 years of stagnation? Well, if you wish, why is it the case that income per capita in the world economy increased 14-fold in the past two centuries after literally hundreds of thousands of years of no change? And the second mystery is the mystery of inequality, namely what is the origin of this vast inequality in living standards across countries and regions of the world? Why some countries are rich and others are poor? And it turns out in this exploration that much of the inequality that we see across the globe is originated in the distant past, namely forces that operated hundreds of years ago, thousands of years ago, and even tens of thousands of years ago, affected the process of development, affected the operation of the wheels of change, if you wish, and consequently affected inequality as we see it across the globe. And as you argued eloquently, this is in fact the interaction between geographical forces and demographic forces that ultimately brought about much of the inequality as we see it across the globe today. So it's a breathtaking thesis, and I want to explore lots of different kind of elements of it, Oded. So 
Let's start with the story of humanity, as you say, which is this incredible story of virtually unchanged standard of living. You know, there are times when things improve and times when they deteriorate and it differs from place to place, but really not very much movement for hundreds of thousands of years. And indeed, as you point out, it looks as though in many ways our kind of standard of living declined after we became settled on the land kind of 12,000 years ago. And then there's this sudden, dramatic, off-the-scale shift, which really starts with the Industrial Revolution in Britain and then spreads around the world and continues up to the present day. Now, one of the really interesting insights that I gained from the book was that the Malthusian view of the world, which and Malthus wrote before this explosion, before this moment happens, was actually correct um, ironically, almost up until the point at which he published his book, which is not to say he was a tragic figure because he was fated in his lifetime by you know many other thinkers at that time. But this is a wonderful irony, isn't it, that Malthus was correct just about until he developed the theory. Indeed, indeed. That's precisely right. So, so Malthus was basically making the argument that there are two processes that are governing the journey of humanity, if you wish. One of them is food production that is advancing in arithmetic rate. And another one is population growth that is advancing in exponential rate. And consequently, argue that humanity is doomed to live in poverty because food production will always be exceeded by population growth. And as you argued correctly, in fact, over most of human history, this is precisely the patterns that we see. When technology is advancing, resources are expanding temporarily, but ultimately much of this expanded resources is converted into sustaining more individuals, population is growing, and ultimately these expanded resources are divided over a larger number of people, and the material well-being of the population is merely unchanged. And this is the pattern that we see over 300,000 year period, namely over 99.9% of human existence. Technology is advancing very slowly initially, but ultimately it is converted into more people rather than into richer people. Namely what we experience in today's world, which is that technologically superior economies are more prosperous, did not exist in the past. In the past, technologically superior economies were economies where population density was larger, not the prosperity of nations. And this is where there's a, another kind of subtle argument that took me a while to, to kind of, ref, I reflected on it and to understand it. Because in a sense, this feels like we're saying, well, okay, we can divide history up into these two chapters, one very, very, very long chapter and one extremely short chapter. But actually what you want to argue, I think I'm right in saying, Oded, is that in a sense, the conditions for the Industrial Revolution were laid, that, that although it is a complete break, I mean, the metaphor I thought of in a sense was almost tinder and a fire, that the Industrial Revolution is, is the fire. There's this sudden qualitative shift in the state. But actually, the firewood was drying out. The conditions were becoming ready. So there is a continuity here as well as break. 
Indeed, that's precisely right. When you think about the transition from stagnation to growth, the, the transition from the Malthusian epoch into the modern growth regime, this transition is associated with what one can define as a phase transition. In what sense? What we see in the course of human history is that the wheels of change are rotating at an ever-increasing rate. These wheels of change are the size of the population, the composition of the human population, and technological progress. So we start in Africa 300,000 years ago. The population is modest. This modest population, nevertheless, is equipped with the human brain. This human brain permits this modest population to advance technologies. Now, this technological advancement appears very rudimentary. We move from one stone tool technology to another. Over hundreds of years, over thousands of years, progress is very, very minor. But nevertheless, every increment in this level of technology permits more people to be supported and brings about an adaptation of the human population to the technological environment and to the geographical environment. And the size of the human population affects in turn the rate of technological progress. More people implies more innovators, more demand for innovators, more adapted people increases the likelihood of further technological progress. So in the course of human history, we see these three wheels of change rotating gradually, initially at a very, very small pace. But nevertheless, if you think about the transition from 300,000 years ago to the eve of industrialization, we move from stone tool technologies to steam engine technologies. If we think about the size of the human population, in the eve of the agricultural revolution, the size of the human population is nearly two and a half million people, and the size of the human population at the midst of industrialization is about one billion people, 400-fold increase. So despite this Malthusian stagnation, we see great dynamism in the Malthusian world that over 300,000 year period is bringing about technological acceleration. And this technological acceleration is changing the landscape in which people are operating. In order to cope with this rapidly changing technological environment, individuals must acquire education. They must acquire human capital. Parents start to invest in the education of their children in the beginning of the 19th century and more so towards the end of the 19th century in England. But parents have limited resources. They cannot economize on their own consumption because their own consumption is very close to the subsistence level. And as a result of it, they're forced to reduce the number of children. And this is critical because it is this reduction in fertility rates, this reduction in population growth that frees the growth process from the counterbalancing effect of population. Namely, for the first time in human history, technological progress is converted into richer people, prosperous people, rather than into more people. So this is the phase transition that takes us from the Malthusian epoch of stagnation into the modern growth regime. And in your account, a critical factor is investment in human capital. And one of the things you explore is the incentives for investment in human capital. And in a sense, 
one of the points that you make is that actually what look as though they are successful systems in the short term may not be successful because actually those systems do not provide incentives for investment in human capital. And there are many stories in the book, Ed, and I wanted to give you one of my own, and you can maybe make, take the broader point from this. I remember in the 1980s going to visit Northern Ireland and talking about unemployment and education there. And one of the things I was told was that the Catholic population who had been largely excluded from economic opportunity by the Protestant majority who'd run the the country were doing better in school and that there were enormous problems with achievement, particularly from Protestant boys. And when I asked about this, what I was told was that because Protestant boys had been more or less guaranteed a job in manufacturing, a relatively well-paid manufacturing job on the shipbuilding sites or whatever, there was just an assumption that you could get a job without having to invest. And now these jobs were going, but the cultural norm, the kind of cultural assumption that you were a boy and you could walk into a good job without having to study at school was still there. And now, of course, it had become problematic. And that's a vignette, isn't it, Odette, of a broader argument that occurs throughout your book? Indeed. So when we reach this critical point, and this is occurring typically in the second phase of industrialization, and when technology is advancing very, very rapidly, industrialists realize that, in fact, they need more educated labor force in order to compete and in order to sustain their profit rates. And consequently, rather than suppressing their labor and rather than employing more children than otherwise, in fact, they opt for a different solution. They actively lobby in the British Parliament in favor of education reforms. And their active lobbying is ultimately implemented in the context of the Education Act of 1870 and the Education Act of 1902, the so-called Balfour Act, that is basically making education free and compulsory across the British population. So indeed, you can see certain regions of England or otherwise in other regions of the world in which the population is not participating initially in this process, but ultimately we see the emergence of public education, of compulsory education that is pulling individuals across all segments of societies into this process. And it is, as I said, not occurring in the early phases of industrialization, it is occurring towards the second phase of industrialization, mostly in the post-1830 period in the context of England, where the acceleration in technological progress makes it clear to industrialists that without educated labor force, they cannot maintain their competitiveness, their profit rates will decline, and it is time to have an educated labor force. And unlike the viewpoint that was advanced by Marx about the decline and the potential class struggle that will emerge between capitalists and, and labor in the course of the process of industrialization, in fact, it is a point in time in which industrialists realize that in order to sustain their profit rates, they must invest in the education of their labor force. And this investment will ultimately complement their capital, will sustain their profit rates, and will allow them to sustain their competitiveness. But there's always also this argument that you make, Oda, that that in a sense, success can lead to failure so that 
for example, at certain points, nations, regions have a very successful agricultural industry or export, but that doesn't need them to invest in human capital. And then when the terms of trade turn against them, for example, they then find themselves disadvantaged, which is, I guess, the, the point about the story in Belfast, which is that there was a sense they didn't need to invest in human capital because what they were doing was guaranteed. But of course, you know, nothing is guaranteed. And ultimately, the level of investment in human capital is, is a critical factor in economic resilience. Indeed. So we can see it in the context of the transition from agriculture to industry. And we can see it even in the context of the transition from the industrial sector into the service sector. As you suggested correctly, when the transition is taking place from agriculture to industry, the landed aristocracy is reluctant to permit workers to enjoy the benefits of education. They realize that their profit rates, their rental rate on land, depends on their ability to restrict the mobility of workers from the rural area into the urban area. They realize that education will be the vehicle that will permit this migration to be more pronounced. And as a result of it, they lobby actively in order to prevent education reforms in any society in which the landed aristocracy is powerful enough. Nevertheless, this transition is ultimately taking place because it is beneficial for the society as a whole. And ultimately, the wishes of the industrialist is in fact being implemented and education reforms are being implemented. And we see it later on in the context of the transition from the rudimentary industrial sector into more sophisticated industrial production and the service sector. Again, initially, industrialization is very beneficial for the economy and having a comparative advantage in the industrial sector is beneficial. But ultimately, those regions that are specializing in rudimentary industrial production have low demand for human capital, low technological spillovers, low spillovers in the context of human capital formation, and they're trapped behind. When we think about areas, say, in the United States, such as the Rust Belts, these areas were prosperous at the beginning of the century, at the beginning of the 20th century, but ultimately they're declining in the second part of the 20th century, precisely because of the fact that they are not associated with major technological spillovers and major demand for human capital. So, Edward, I want to turn to what might be critiques of your thesis. And I'm really here not talking about critiques of the book, because I think the book covers most of the bases. But what people listening to this conversation who unwisely don't buy the book, maybe just hear about it, that, that they may get wrong impressions about it. So I want to explore two or three of how people listening to this might respond to it. So the first is, you're not arguing that history is fate in the sense, you're not arguing, I don't think, that everything is ultimately <laughs> determined. Human agency still matters. Indeed, on the contrary, I argue precisely the opposite. I argue that, in fact, by understanding our history, we will be in a better position to design our futures. The sense that history affected the evolution of institutions across the globe, 
I mean, geography affected the evolution of cultural traits across the globe. In some regions of the world, we're blessed by geographical conditions that were conducive for the development of growth-enhancing cultural traits. Some regions of the world were blessed with geographical conditions that were conducive for the emergence of inclusive institutions, demographic institutions, growth-enhancing institutions, but others did not. And what I suggest is that if we will be in a better position to understand the history of each particular country in the world, the geography of each particular country or region of the world will be in a better position to design policies that will foster the growth process of developing economies and will permit the convergence of poorer regions into richer ones. So indeed, the argument is not that history is a fate. The argument is that by understanding our history, we will be in a better position to design our future. So if we think about policies, think about, say, policies that were advocated in the past by the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank, policies that were associated with the Washington Consensus. This policy suggested that, in fact, one policy can fit all developing nations at once. And the argument was based on the conviction that, in fact, less developed societies simply suffer from bad policies. And therefore, if we simply offer them a recipe of good policies, they will flourish and they will converge towards the richness of the most developed societies in the world. Ultimately, the Washington Consensus did not lead into major success. And part of the reason is that, in fact, this was based on the idea that one policy will fit all nations at once. And one of the fundamental insights of my book is that, in fact, policies should target each individual country differently, should be based on the geography of this society, on the history of this society, on the evolution of cultural traits in this society, and the evolution of institutional characteristics. Once we will be equipped with all these elements, we can use our resources more effectively in order to foster growth among less developed societies. Now, a few minutes ago, did you mention Marx? And I guess a second critique would be, well, in this account that explains prosperity and inequality in terms of geography and demography, what about power? What about oppression? Surely we can only really understand the world through understanding power relations. and, For example, the impact of colonialism and the racist ideology that underpinned it. Now, again, I know that you address this in the book, but there could be a danger that it would feel as though you're trying to kind of airbrush power and oppression from the historical story. Not at all. So naturally, a significant portion of the book is discussing the the legacy of colonialism and a significant portion of the book is discussing the importance of political institutions and as a result of it, power. Power is important, 
But what I argue is that, in fact, one should have a holistic view of the process of development. Namely, there are different forces that operated in the course of human history. And if we would like to understand the roots of inequality today, we have to consider them all. Namely, when I think about inequality today, the book is gradually peeling different layers of influences. It starts with the role of colonialism, moving into the fingerprints of institutions, the cultural factor, the legacy of geography, the impact of the Neolithic revolution, and ultimately the out-of-Africa hypothesis and its impact on the diversity across the globe. So the viewpoint here is all factors are important. We should consider them all, but as I said, we would like to design policies that will mitigate inequality across the globe. We will have to focus on the individual characteristics of each society rather than designing one policy that will fit all nations at once. And then a final point, which it's interesting in the book, you talk about climate change right at the end. Well, you mentioned it earlier, but you focus on it right at the end. And your thesis is that probably in the grand long run of things, we will probably solve this problem in the way that we have solved problems in the past. I emphasize probably, but that is your view. And I wanted to connect that also to another thing that you say in the book, which is you say that you kind of critique Keynes's line when Keynes says, but in the long run, we're all dead. And I think that, you know, I would defend Keynes in the sense of saying, well, it may well be that the long march of history is progressive. But, you know, if you live during the Engels pause, where living standards fell off to industrialization, or if you live in the horrors of the middle of the 20th century, then there isn't much comfort to be found from the notion that you're somehow a blip. So how would you defend yourself from charges of an implicit complacency, which derives from, I mean, it's a charge actually, interestingly, that was the same kind of charge was, was presented to Steven Pinker in his book around kind of the, the big sweep of history as well. So how would you defend yourself from this notion that, that there's something inherently complacent about this long view? Right. So if I review the journey of humanity and the journey of humanity as a whole, it appears that humanity suffered in numerous occasions devastating blows. I mean, events that devastated significant portion of the human population and was relatively long-lasting. But nevertheless, it appears that humanity managed to recover from each of these episodes. And in fact, if we focus on the grand arc of human development, it appears that humanity return to its initial course, perhaps even with greater resolve. So for instance, in the middle of the 14th century, around 1347 to 1352, we see the impact of the Black Death on the population of Europe. Nearly 40% of the European population is decimated. Naturally, every individual that lived through this period was devastated tremendously. One should not belittle the, the suffering, the human suffering that occurred over this time period. But nevertheless, in the aftermath of the Black Death, 
we see that standard of living is increasing significantly. The human population is ultimately recovering within a period of about 250 to 300 year period. And in fact, technological progress is improving in a way that is countering the need and the reliance on human population. Some of these technologies are labor-saving technologies that are emerging during this time period. Namely, human ingenuity allows humanity to recover from this with greater results. Now, in fact, we saw it not so recently in the course of COVID-19. Again, if we think about human ingenuity in the context of COVID-19, it is quite apparent that if, in fact, COVID-19 would have hit society perhaps 200 years ago, humanity would have been devastated for a significantly longer period of time. And here again, human ingenuity is coming uh, to the rescue of humanity. And within a, a very short period of time, humanity is able to recover. Now, naturally, climate change is very, very different. And climate change is perhaps the single most devastating event or potentially the most devastating event that could derail humanity from its long-term march. But here, when I think about climate change and I think about the causes of climate change, I'm rather hopeful, not naive, hopeful, in the sense that I think that we have the tools and we have the knowledge and we have the level of education that with some probability will allow us to avert these potential catastrophes. If we will not be complacent and if in fact we will continue to employ environmentally friendly technologies and if we will employ stricter standards of carbon emissions across the planet, then the fact that at the time in which climate change started to take place, namely at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, we see an additional element that is operating in the context of, of human history, which is this dramatic decline in fertility. And this dramatic decline in fertility is very promising because in the end of the day, when we think about pollution, these are humans that are polluting planet Earth. And if in fact, population growth will decline as we see at the moment. And as we know, most recently, India dropped in terms of fertility rate below replacement. So if this pattern will be maintained, in fact, scientists are likely to have three or four decades to develop ingenious technologies that will perhaps reverse the current trend in climate change. So again, this is not a naive view. It is a view that is based on the power of innovations that was developed in the past two centuries. It is based on the idea that the human population is much more educated and as a result of it, much more aware of the catastrophes that are looming in the horizon. As a result of it, it is more likely to adopt policies that can counter climate change. And it is based on the notion that technologies that will emerge three or four decades from now are not necessarily technologies that we can predict. And most likely, as I said, with some significant probability, they will emerge and they will allow us to avert some of the potential catastrophic consequences, provided that we will not be complacent, provided that we will implement all the policies that are in the making at the moment. 
Which takes me right to my final question. You know, often when I read books, I have this sinking feeling that when I've read the first chapter, I've really read all that there is in the book and I'm now just going to read upon it being elaborated. That's really not true of the journey of humanity at all. It's an unfolding story. And, and actually, it's right at the end that you develop a really fascinating thesis that we could have spent the whole program discussing, which is around demographic diversity, population diversity. And I would summarize your your thesis as a kind of Goldilocks thesis, which is that too little diversity is problematic in terms of innovation, new ideas, new ways of doing things, dynamism. But too much diversity can generate challenges in relation to kind of social cohesion and trust. Now, you don't want to argue that these are issues that, again, are fate. You want to argue, you do argue, that in societies that aren't that diverse, there are things that you can do to address the problems of homogeneity. And in societies that are more diverse than maybe perfect, there are things that you can do to promote social cohesion and trust. And I guess that takes me to this kind of final point, because I want to re-emphasize that despite the core thesis of your book about the importance of geography and demography, of very long trends, of deep history, institutions and moments matter. And so if we look at what's going to be happening in America over the next two or three years, that it may well be that it is in some ways related to the diversity of the American population and the reduction in kind of social cohesion, trust, the polarization, maybe one of the reasons why Donald Trump won the first time. But it doesn't determine whether he wins the next time, but yet whether or not he wins could end up being incredibly important. It could be one of those moments when institutional change has an enormous kind of impact, not just on America, but on the rest of the world. So again, isn't that, that's an example, isn't it? I, I think I did of how to understand the challenges America faces, opportunities, you need to have this long lens, but yet it could be a few tens of thousands of votes which make an enormous difference to history. Indeed, that's a fantastic observation. And indeed, I do make the point that diversity potentially has conflicting effects on economic prosperity. On the one hand, it has an adverse effect on social cohesion. And on the other hand, it has uh, beneficial effects for innovation due to the cross-fertilization of ideas and uh, complementarities in the production process. And historically, when we look at the world, say, in the year 1500, it appears that societies that had a level of diversity that was conducive for development were societies in Southeast Asia, the Chinese society, the Japanese society, the Korean societies. Societies that we do not associate necessarily with an optimal level of diversity. But this was a different time period. This was a time period in which the benefits of homogeneity in terms of cohesiveness was much more important than the benefits of diversity in terms of innovativeness. But as I showed in the book, as we move into the modern world, as we move to the 21st century, in fact, societies that are optimally diverse are societies that are significantly more diverse than the Chinese society or the Korean society or the Japanese society. And in fact, a society that has the optimal level of diversity at the moment, according to this empirical research, is the American society, namely society that is significantly more diverse. And this suggests to us that as we move 
into a world that is more challenging technologically, more diverse societies are likely to have the upper hand and consequently, if anything, the march of humanity will bring greater and greater benefit to cultural diversity, cultural fluidity, namely to traits that are sufficiently adaptable to a changing technological environment. And as you said, it is quite possible that at any point in time, the political institutions in particular, a political configuration may derail some societies from its march in one, one way or another. But again, my conviction is, again, that when we think about the grand arc of human history, it will be the case that societies that are more diverse will have the upper hand. And just to conclude, in fact, as you suggested correctly, this is not is historically determined in the sense that we can change the level of diversity of society. We can take a relatively homogeneous society and teach children how to think outside of the box, how to challenge the status quo, how to generate pluralism in a place where pluralism is absent. And we can go to a society that is very diverse, society that perhaps suffer from social cohesion and educate children how to tolerate one another, how to tolerate other ethnic groups, and consequently mitigate the cost of diversity and permit these societies to benefit from the great diversity that exists in these societies. Well, Odid, thank you so much. Your book, The Journey of Humanity, The Origins of Wealth and Inequality, I would strongly recommend it. You might think, if you've been listening to this conversation, that the book must be at least a thousand pages long. Actually, my edition's 240 pages, and it does cover this ground. It's intensely readable as well as profoundly fascinating and authoritative and brilliantly researched. So do do get a copy. Odette, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. It was my pleasure. I hope you've enjoyed this edition of Bridges to the Future. It's free and there's even no pesky advertising. But we at the RSA ask one favour of you. Please do leave a rating or review in your podcast app and tell your friends to join you in subscribing. But to conclude, some might find Oded's thesis fatalistic if today's patterns of wealth and inequality are so deeply rooted in the distant past. What agency do we have? Well, Oded has helped answer that. But perhaps there's an even simpler way of thinking about human history. As David Wonsman once wrote, any study must surely conclude that every major event is at one and the same time determined by its causes and highly contingent on things which could have gone very differently. Surely it's not too much for us to hold two ideas in our mind at one time. We are the RSA. We enable the game changers of today to shift systems, challenge norms, and create impact where it's needed most. Visit thersa.org approach to find out how. And let's make change happen.